It's time for the Chip Race. Hello and welcome to the Chip Race, aka Unibet Poker's favourite horsey. I'm your host David Lappin. Darrow Kearney has taken a seat alongside me and Ian Simpson has been placed in a soundproof box until he's needed to screech out another news segment. This week we sit down for a frankly hilarious chat with Poker Pro and newly crowned Aspers champion Tom Hall. Darrow and I will also chat to vlogger, commentator, twitcher and the newest Unibet ambassador Rauno, Estonian Jesus Takfunen. Diva stops by to give her opinion on that hand between Neil Farrell and Maria Ho from the WSOP Europe main event. We've also got a surprise visit from Hendon mobster Barney Boatman, whose book he played for his wife and other stories has just hit the shelves. But first... Vlogs. Well, for anyone who's been watching the WSOP over the last few months, and indeed any, any kind of poker content at all over the last maybe year or so, they can't but have noticed that a lot of high-profile players have started doing video blogs or vlogs. Um... Are they flavor of the month? Are they here to stay? I really don't know. To help me maybe investigate this question, Dara, I have you here. Do you see this as replacing blogs? Yeah, I'm not sure. I think the jury's still out on that. I, I feel like it's very much flavor of the month in the sense that like a couple of guys like Andrew Neamey and um, Doug Pope started doing vlogs on Jake Cody. And you know they got, they, they got a lot of traction initially. So other people jumped on the bandwagon. Um, and I know Unibet Ambassador Espen uh, on his blog recently kind of hinted that blogs are a bit passe and vlogs are more suited to the current market. We weren't happy with that when we heard that one, Dara. Well, I'm not 100% sure I agree with that, to be honest, because I think, first of all, they're two different things. Um, you can you, you can go into much more substance in a blog than you can in a vlog. Most most of the vlogs we see are, 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 are fairly you know fluffy. It's, it's the guy walking around talking to his... Um, talking to his GoPro. Um, <laughs> Man, if I have to see a fucking uh, airport, you know, walking through the airport video one more poxy time, I swear to God. Yeah, I mean, it's it's it's, it's, it's already become a very cliched uh, genre, I think, and, and, and that might actually make people get tired of it pretty quickly. I think there was a certain novelty when there was just one or two people, guys doing it. But I think even looking at the viewing figures, it does seem to me that the numbers are trailing off. Um, that might be because... Uh, um, it's a more crowded market now, but I also feel like the novelty has kind of worn off to a certain extent. Yeah, well, we have a lot of new technologies these these days. I guess, you know, you, you know, I watch Twitch from time to time. I obviously perform on Twitch from time to time. Um, we, we, we we're finding our way into poker through that video game platform. Uh, you know, historically, whether it was uh, training videos or blogs that were describing strategy, that was people's way into poker as well. Anecdotal blogs like ones you do yourself there of, of poker trips and such things um, were nice ways in for people. Absolutely. When you see a nice maybe landscape of where the poker event is on, it looks very pretty and someone shows pictures of their plane taking off and landing. It all seems very exciting and, and you can kind of vicariously live through that poker pro's adventure on his poker trip that day. But, but really, I, I don't know as you said I, I feel like it's a very restrictive format and, and, and we are we're already seeing the same visual cues like you've mentioned yeah I think like some of the some of the vlogs are, are, are made very professionally like Doug Pope clearly has somebody uh, very visually astute uh, advising him and also doing the edit afterwards the rest of us are just kind of stuck with whatever we can film on our iPad or our phone and, 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 and kind of wing it and I think that has you know, a kind of a Blair Witch project feel to. I mean, the the, the the numbers that the best vlogs get are far greater than the numbers that the 
best blogs get, let's say. Sure. But then it's a different type of player who, who, who who's logging. Um, I think if like a random player vlogs, the numbers could be very small. And I and like you, you don't have to look too hard on YouTube to see like some very well professionally done vlogs that got like forty four views. So sure. Um, I think when the top players do something and it's and it's new, it has a novelty value. But whether it's actually going to have durability, I don't know. Like when I look at Doug Polk's channel, for example, I think you know he 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 would have initially he was doing hand breakdowns almost exclusively, and then he started doing other stuff, and he started seeing that the numbers for those were quite good. So I can imagine that that gave him sort of an incentive to do to do more vlogs and less hand breakdowns. But my worry going forward is that like you know in three months' time, nobody's going to care about Doug Polk's third vlog from the WSOP. Um, and it's not going to go on getting sort of residual views, whereas his hand breakdowns could still be interesting in two or three years. That's really interesting. So, so they lack a timeless quality, I guess, because they are really capturing a, a moment in time, and then that moment may just kind of fade into insignificance. Yeah, I think I think that's true, and I think you know maybe maybe even YouTube isn't the best um, platform for this. Maybe the more immediate social media like Facebook Live or Instagram. Actually, a lot of the stuff that the best stuff that I've seen are is on Instagram, and by its very nature, that only lasts twenty four hours when people put up a story. Um, and that might be actually a better way to sort of do it going forward. Yeah, the, the the only thing I can kind of relate it to that comes from the previous paradigm, if you like, was the Life of Ivy that they used to do on Poker Road. Um, but again, that was somebody else filming him. It wasn't his personal confessional diary. These days, I, I agree with you, Dara. Yeah, I, I do wonder whether the novelty will wear off. Now, I, I hope it doesn't. And i got to say, uh, good pal of ours, uh, Ben Voyage, Estonian Jesus, the man has a lot of names uh, in the... Uh, Unibet crew makes some fantastic uh, video blogs. He travels all around uh, Palestine and uh, he's from Estonia. Obviously, he runs a uh, skateboarding center. So there's, you know, there's great scope there for good visual stuff. But uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I wish them all luck. And, and I think there's room for all these different things in poker. But, uh, you know, personally, my own preference, you know, give me a blog any day. Yeah, like I think a blog is the kind of thing that you know people can still read in a few years. And I know from just looking at my own blog figures that people do read old blogs. Um, I, I don't think blogs have the same timeless quality. Uh, you, you mentioned the life of Ivy. I, I think in a sense vlogs might be all, almost the current equivalent. Of if, if you remember five or six years ago, Car Pair started doing all these essentially poker cribs where they went to oh I do apartment, a different apartment in the Panorama Towers here in Vegas. Every everything and you know some some poker player like JC. Alvarado showed them around, showed them the fact that he had zero art on the wall, he only had beer in his fridge and he had six guys playing (laughs) (laughs) and at the time, you know, that seemed like really cool that we were seeing these top players but now now we look back with a certain amount of scorn and I think people only watch those YouTube videos now to kind of you know laugh at how naff it the whole thing yeah it really was it was kind of like shit cribs and I remember it kind of took on a life of its own for a few months because I think poker stars started doing their own versions and our friend Dermot Blaine had a video of him or maybe this was a full tilt one a video of him in Monte Carlo you know talking about how he bought his rice cakes down the road down the road yeah we got to see some great content visually I mean we, we kind of forget that we forgot to see Dermot talking about rice cakes or we got to see um, Mickey Peterson and Elena walking hand in hand in some park in London uh. we, got, we got to see Shane Schlager looking like a crack addict very <laughs> depressed because he couldn't get access to drugs down in Mexico way Mexico way 
Yeah. Well, on that note, I'm not sure any of this can stay in, but we will do our best. <laughs> Dara, thank you very much. That was great fun. We are joined now by Unibet's newest ambassador, Rauno, Estonian Jesus, Benjamin Voyage. You've got a lot of names. Tochvonen. Rauno, welcome to the show. Oh, man. Happy to be here. How that, are you guys? That was only the third take trying to get your name right. <laughs> and now it's perfect, man. For today. <laughs> Can you please tell our audience why you have so many different names? Uh, did, like, did you murder someone? You know, who are you trying to run away from? Yeah, I'm covering my tracks big time right now. Let's, uh, well, let's start from Ben. Uh, I was uh, I went to Australia seven years ago, and pretty much the first month I met a good now a good friend of mine Jessica, and she, first day we met she was like you look like Benjamin I was like, uh, but I remember that three months later when I put my hand out and shake a man's hand I said, I'm Ben, nice <laughs> to meet you, and then my life changed forever. So when I'm traveling everyone pretty much calls me Ben. Cool. In a recent vlog of yours you wake up in what appears to be a rooftop dumpster. Are you homeless? And if so, why? <laughs> uh, no, actually, I was uh, traveling in Palestine. Uh, that was actually in, still in Israel. It was the um, old, old town of Jerusalem. And uh, I was sleeping on top of a hostel building. Okay. So I actually had to pay for that so-called dumpster. You had to pay dumpster. That seems like a bad deal. You'll find anything on Airbnb these days. <laughs> well, it's interesting you say you were in Jerusalem. Uh, your most popular nickname, of course, is Estonian Jesus. And I wondered, why is that? Was your mom a virgin? I wouldn't touch that topic. Uh, Estonian Jesus, yeah. I was uh, Unibet London when I did really well in February. And I guess the stream, the Twitch stream, or the commentators, uh, they named me. And it's like, I can't stop them anymore. So that's how it goes. <laughs> I met you first in Tallinn where you were working as a live stream commentator for the MPN tour. How did you get that gig? Hmm. So a couple of years ago, I started doing... Um, what is it? Uh, blogging. Pretty much the same, that, like press work. Yeah. And I did some blogging and um, somehow they needed, we had a cash game festival in Estonia and I don't know, they liked who I was. So I did, I helped to make them like the podcast or not the podcast, but the stream. I helped them with the stream and somehow I ended up being one of the commentators. Uh, like next time they wanted me again, then was MPN already and it's just kind of rolled from there. Yeah. Yeah, because you did quite a few of those. Uh, I think I did commentary with you in Vienna as well, and David. I joined you Mazagan. in Mazagan. Yeah, yeah Mazagan. Right. I was not in Vienna. Yeah. 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 Mazagan, Tallinn, and uh, I did the Unibed special one that was in Tallinn as well. When you're doing live stream commentary, how do you find the balance between entertainment and stories and anecdotes? And then obviously, you're obviously an excellent poker player, so analysis on what's going on. Uh, I guess, like, because you spent there, like, just eight hours, you just, like, you start having fun with the other commentators or the guys you have with with you there, and it just goes like smoothly. And I, I usually don't overthink it. Like I, I enjoy about talking hands about poker, so I focus on poker. But I do love having fun as well. So sometimes we start nicknaming the players at the table. I don't know how <laughs> like professional that is, but you know I'm just the guy, right? Sure. Well. Over the course, I guess, of like eight hours in a commentary box, the conversations will go to all sorts of weird and wonderful places. Um, I actually heard once uh, you on a live stream speaking quite candidly about your issues with addiction. And I wondered, well, seeing as it's something you don't mind putting out there into the public, would you mind talking about that and, and you know how, maybe how you've struggled with it over the years? All right, yeah. So pretty much uh, when I was fairly young, I, I really enjoyed like just testing out new stuff. 
And uh, I used to smoke pot a lot. I, I think like a lot of guys nowadays do it. And I, I can't imagine anyone listening to this podcast knows anything <laughs> about what you're talking about. Yeah, there. so I think yeah, like for maybe eight, ten years, I, I really smoked pot a lot and tested out with some other uh, psychedelics as well. And I, I really enjoyed them. Uh, but the thing is, it's just, it's so easy to have fun when you do this stuff. But now, like, I've been clean for two years, and I decided now that I won't drink alcohol until I'm 30 as well. Now I really have to do something to have fun. It just can't go, like, just pop a pill and, like, oh, yeah, it's a great day. Now, now I need to try new stuff and learn and improve myself. And life is so much more exciting, actually, because of that. Yeah, it sounds like you've challenged your addictive personality into, into more healthier addictions. Like, I always feel myself I have a very addictive personality. Mm. I, you know, I've got addicted to things like running poker things which which have been positive for my life and so i think if you find some way to channel that sort of aspect of your personality you can actually get something very healthy out of it yeah totally agree with that your two passions are uh obviously poker is one of them and uh, skateboarding is the other it, it's something that features in your vlogs often enough can you tell us a little bit about the skateboarding world and you know maybe some of the projects you've invested your time into mm-hmm uh, so yeah, I've been skateboarding now almost close to 15 years. I remember the day when I got my first uh, skateboard really easily because it was Women's Day, I think. And that was my Women's Day present for me, <laughs> for myself. Uh, about skateboarding, yeah, me and my mate, we started a non-profit skateboarding school in Estonia. Done it for, I think, for four years. Time flies, right? Don't really mm-hmm. count the days. And we give classes three times a week, just small kids, university students, so it's all good fun. And uh, a couple of months ago, we talked about it a little bit as well. I was traveling in Palestine, and one of my friends just asked me, like, do you want to go to Palestine? I saw a photo on Instagram that they do skateboarding classes there, and they are looking for volunteers. So I was just a volunteer there and did some traveling, and I really really enjoyed uh, Muslim culture and Arabic culture. Like, uh, I really would like to start studying Arabic. But the thing is, when I'm over in Europe, I'm I'm really not using it. And then, like, I, I don't feel a reason to start studying again. So someone has to be, like, hitting me to start doing it because I, I really think it's it's good way to, like, when I was over there, there's one out of ten people, like, could really speak English. But I was, we were sitting at, in front of cafes every night having a lot of coffee and just trying to use our hands and legs or whatever to speak with each other. <laughs> so yeah. it's like such an amazing experience. So if you guys have a chance, just pack your stuff and head over to Palestine. They're so friendly over there. Yeah, I spent some time uh, in that part of the world about 20 years ago uh, between the two Gulf Wars. And I was actually in Saudi, but the people that I enjoyed spending the most time with were Palestinians. Mm. I found them incredibly friendly people. Yeah, it's uh, unbelievable. People. Yeah. And the work you did there, obviously, it was a, there was an aspect of outreach to it. You were sort of providing, I guess, like something to do for the, the young kids who maybe are living in kind of not great situations. Any particular stories of those kids or, you know, any of the activities that bring to mind? Yeah, that, that's the surprising part. Like, they are living behind, literally, behind a wall. And, like, Israelis can, the military can come and stop them whenever. But the kids, they're surprisingly happy. It's, like, unbelievable. Yeah, we just, we skate around. And w- what is really amazing over there, when in Europe I go skateboarding, there's often people looking at me like, 
you shouldn't be doing this. So you might be like, I don't know, maybe like breaking something or... Yeah, I would be one of those people. I would definitely be looking at you like that, yeah. What are you doing, right? <laughs> but over there, they were like, we were skateboarding in the market. Locals, they stop cars and taxis just to, look, come on, yalla, yalla, it's your turn. Like, they just want to see you, like, have fun and like, experience great. it. Uh, this year, you've notched up quite a few good results. You final tabled Unibet Open London. You won a side event at Unibet Copenhagen. You were third at the Unibet UK Glasgow Tour Stop. And you just cashed the Unibet DSO Malta. Is it your intention to make the other ambassadors look bad? <laughs> I'd prefer not to answer this question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's been a wild ride. Like, last couple of months have been really, truly amazing. I'm running good. But like last couple of years, me and my mates, we've been putting a lot of effort into this as well. So I guess it's finally paying off. But think of poor Espen, like it's just looking where every time you just like final table something, he's just looking worse and worse now. But man, he, look at his muscles though, like, <laughs> no way. So, so, so what you're saying is he's been investing his time into other important things in his life. Shots fired. <laughs> Well, on that note, uh, Rauno Tachnovin, 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 I did it again. Perfect. Rauno Tachnovin. Tachvonen, the B is first. Well, on that note, Rauno Tachvonen, thank you so much for joining us on the chip race. We really appreciate you stopping by. Cheers, guys. Thank you. It's time for Ian Simpson with the news. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the news. I do have to apologise, but this week's probably going to be a short news segment. It's been a bit of a quiet week in poker. I know how much you guys anticipate this part of the show, so hopefully it'll be a bit longer <laughs> next week for you guys. Uh, first things, uh, the GOKPT Blackpool main event was won by Danny Corbett. He got £87,000 after he bested a field of 314 players. So congratulations to him. Uh, the Party Poker live event in Punta Cana has begun. It started with a $1,000, $1 million guaranteed event. Uh, now, I don't have any confirmed numbers or anything like that, but one of my friends on Facebook said, I know there's big overlay in the 1K, but I'm already drunk on pina coladas by the pool and I just can't be asked." Uh, so they, they might have shot themselves in the foot with a free bar, it seems. Um... So yeah, that's about all that's going on in the poker world at the minute. Um, as you know, satellites to Unibet Open Bucharest finished about a week ago or so. Um, now, there has been a formal announcement, but I noticed in the client, the satellite was advertising London as the next destination in February. So that should be exciting. Um, we've also got the Unibet UK tour coming to its conclusion for 2017 in Manchester for the £40,000 guaranteed £220 event. Uh, now, there's always a ton of added value in these events. There's bounties on all of the ambassadors, and we often have to fire two bullets because that just seems to be how we're running at the minute. Um, there's also Unibet open packages given away both to the longest lasting online qualifier and the overall winner of the event. All this added value definitely makes it the juiciest sub £500 game in the UK by far. And that starts on the Friday, the 8th of December. So make sure you don't miss that. Well, first of being uh, Punta Cana, you were there last year, as I recall. Didn't go this year, but, you know, what are your memories of that event? Uh, it, was, it was a lot of fun. Uh, lots of free booze, lots of good poker. Yeah, really enjoyed it. I did my bollocks on satellites this time and didn't get there. <laughs> good stuff. And finally, I just wanted to ask you a little bit. I know you didn't talk about this, but the uh, Unibet online schedule, we're up and running about a month now. Uh, there's loads of new tournaments on the schedule, including the uh, Marquee Supernova event. Yeah, it's. I mean, I love the event. Uh, it's so damn juicy. I, I kind of um, don't want to advertise it. So should we not talk about it? 
It's what like my my job is to talk about like the Unibet client and all the games are so soft. But we cut this bit out just so that you keep all the value for yourself. Yeah, like I keep getting people coming onto my stream saying, "Oh, I think I'll play Unibet," and I'm like, and it's like someone I know who's really good, and I'm like, "Ah, do you want to? Are you sure?" You don't want to go play somewhere else. <laughs> and the other really good tournament that starts around the same time is the Odyssey, the 50 Rebuy. You had a bit of success in that last weekend. Um, want to tell our listeners? Do you want to have a little brag? Little brag. I got second. I got second. Uh, yeah, I'm really loving the new schedule. Uh, so, yeah, I've had a couple of good results. I won the Supernova a few weeks ago. I got second in the Odyssey. So, yeah, I'm really enjoying it. Anyway, for, for what was a quiet week uh, in, in, in the news, in the world of poker, thank you very much, Ian. Thanks very much. Take care. For our strategy this week, I wanted to look at a hand. Well, it's quite a famous hand at the moment. It was a big hand involving Neil Farrell and Maria Ho at the World Series of Poker Europe. It's pretty much done the rounds. Everybody's talking about it. I wanted to give Dara O'Carney a chance to really break down the hand in detail. We also have Diva Byrne here. Before we get into the hand, though, Diva, welcome back to the show. Uh, Thanks for having me, guys. It's always good fun. I believe you're traveling across America at the moment. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, I had a lovely week in New York uh, with uh, my husband and his dad. Um, it's always yeah a nice city to spend a whole week. There's lots to do. Still run out of time, so we'll need to come back. <laughs> and at the moment, uh, we are in Fort Lauderdale, which uh, yeah we got here yesterday. And I'm going to be playing a tournament tomorrow at the Seminole Hard Rock. So I uh, never played here before. It should be good fun. Uh, it's 500,000 guaranteed. Uh, a multiple day event. Uh, so yeah, fingers crossed for that. Uh, hopefully I can run good. Well, best of luck with that. Flying the Unibet flag over in the US of A. Um, well, anyway, Thank let's you. get down to this hand. I'm sure you have an opinion on it too, Diva. But Dara, maybe you could you know, start us off and describe it. Sure, yeah. Well, I think there was two tables out, um, 15 or 16 players left uh, when this hand happened. Uh, and basically the blinds are 8,000, 16,000 and there's a 2k ante um, Rainer Kempe is the chip leader at the table, he's got 96 big blinds and then the shortest stack at the table who's not involved in the hand is 14 big blinds so you know they're still relatively deep and uh, the final table is far enough away that ICM although a factor is not massive yet so it's folded around to Rainer in the hijack uh, he looks down at pocket nines Um Obviously, he, he he opens the hand, so he opens to thirty four k, just over over two x. Uh, then Kristen Bicknell on the button, flat calls with ace jack suited, uh, ace jack of spades, and then Niall Farrell finds ace king off suit in the small blind, and he bumps it up from thirty four k to one hundred and fifty two k. And then Maria Ho looks down at pocket tens in the big blind, uh, so she has you know quite a tricky decision as well. She eventually calls, and that causes the other two players to call as well. Uh, Reno calls with his pocket nines, and Kristen with her ace jack suited. So I guess the first thing I mean, a lot of people have focused just on what happens on the flop on this hand, but the the pre flop is quite interesting too. Obviously, Rainer's open is pretty standard. What do you guys think about Kristen calling on the button with ace jack suited? Um, at this stage, Kristen had 53 big blinds. I, I think it's the best play with that hand, uh, considering the stacks and ICM, uh, shorter stacks there, and it's a nice hand to peel with and position flops well. Uh, yeah, don't see any, anything wrong with that. 
Yeah, yeah, I, I, I agree, and I did run this through Holden Resources Calculator just to see. Uh, in, interestingly, Holden Resources Calculator actually prefers the three bet this hand, but uh, but it's really close. Um, both it, both it, it's, it's a profitable flat and a profitable three bet, but not massively so. So it's um, I guess ICM is already starting to be a factor. So even though it's you know we want to play this hand, it's not a, it's it's not a brilliant situation. Then what about Neil's decision to three bet the small blind ace king? Yeah, I'd like. I, I think it's pretty. It's played pretty standard until the action gets to Maria. Uh, Neil obviously decides he's going for a, uh, a three bet in juice, and uh, and he makes it the right sizing. You know, from the small blind out of position uh, when you're squeezing in that spot. I think historically people used to kind of three point five, maybe four x. But really these days, if you're going to be out of position in the hand, a five x is sort of necessary. Um, that is five x of the open. So really, you're putting in ten big blinds now to really leverage the other guys into. Uh, difficult decisions they're going to have to be most of the time they're going to be in uh, shover fold mode although that's exactly not what happened yeah Uh, and then Maria looks down at pocket tens Uh, now after Neil's raised Neil has basically raised to to nine and a half big blinds and Maria starts the hand with uh, 58 big blinds I believe so she now has has quite a tricky spot and she probably doesn't want to get 58 big blinds in with pocket tens so uh, four betting doesn't seem great uh, and at the same time folding seems pretty nitty but uh, but calling like I think people often see uh, this is an Andrew Brokers line by the way that ca- calling is not a compromise sometimes people feel that like a hand is too strong to fold but not strong enough to 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 four bet uh, so they end up calling but actually calling can actually be the worst play because um, you know you basically can't win the pot there and then so I'm not convinced at all by this call she's she's putting in between 15 and 20% of her stack preflop with pocket tens it's probably likely to invite the other two people behind so you could say well okay she's set mining but normally you don't want to be putting in 20% of your stack if you, if you are just set mining she also has if that happens she's going to have the worst position after the flop she's going to have Neil Farrell the preflop aggressor first to act so he's going to um lead a lot uh, you know continuation bet and then she's going to have to make her decision with two players still lurking behind um, so I'm I, I, I kind of feel like the call pre-flop is a mistake um, and it might actually be the worst of the three options if she thinks that that Nile is super wide here then maybe just shut your eyes and shove and there's so much out there at this stage that uh, you know if, she, if, she, if the shove gets through she picks up uh, something like 250k which, yeah. which is a pretty big sweep when you only have 900k um, and on the other hand like you know when you get called if you get called by S-King you've got good equity uh, so I think the shove has, has some merit I think the fold although very nitty is also uh, justifiable um, and I actually think calling might be the worst play I, t- I tend to agree because I, I was watching live stream at the time and I was thinking what would I do in that spot and I was thinking yeah like you said I don't really want to set mine which is what she essentially doing with that stack? She doesn't even get what I thought. Yeah, I think if I if I, I if I had to put numbers on it, I think probably folding is probably slightly better than shoving, uh, and then I think they're both significantly better than calling. And like another problem she has there is, you know, if if the opener or or the flatter have have genuine hands and they decide to shove, she's not going to feel great about calling it off at pocket ten. No. No, she's just calling literally to see the flop, to set, set mine, yeah. Exactly. Um, 
and, and then Rainer was the chip leader so I think his call with nines is justifiable he, he, he sort of does have a good set mining spot now that Maria has called as well I'm not convinced by Kristen's call with the ace jack suited um She's putting in, she started the hand with 850k, so she's putting in, again, almost 20% of her stack with a hand which is very likely to be dominated by at least one of the players, uh, as as is actually the case here. Like, Neil has the ace game now. Ace-jack suit is obviously a very pretty hand, but yeah. think about the way it flops. Like, are you going to be happy on an ace-high flop if all the chips go in? I don't think so. Are you going to be happy on a jack-high flop? Again... Probably not. Not versus three people, no. Yeah. Uh, and specifically with a hand like Ace Jack Suit, while it does flop very well, a lot of the time to realize your equity with a hand like that, you are actually going to have to get it in with roughly 50% equity on the flop. Uh, you know, where you've got maybe two overs and a flush draw um, and you're up against a yeah. bad hand. And in a situation where, okay, we're still 15 or 16 players, so I say it's an extreme, but it is still a factor. Like, you don't really want to be getting it in with 50% equity at this stage of the tournament. So I think probably the more prudent thing would just have been to think, okay, well, this pot's gotten too big now um, and I'll get out with my ace jack. Yeah, I think yeah. you've pretty much nailed that analysis, Dara. I, 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 my instinct would have been in terms of Maria's spot. Um, I've been at the table with Neil a few times and he does create a dynamic where you do suddenly start looking at hands like eights, nines and tens like they're jacks, queens and kings because he is playing so loose. Uh, Rainer obviously as the chip leader is probably opening wide and the fact that he only gets flatted would make me feel like that flat wasn't particularly strong particularly because it's on the button. So it would certainly have made me think of my tens as being stronger than I normally would my default there would be to fold them but in that spot I think I might have I think I might have actually with the dynamics I, I know Neil creates I might have just gone for it as a shove um, yeah I re- actually really like that option thinking about it I think it's brilliant yeah I totally get away I don't think Jack's even can call you uh, Jack you would fold out you know Jack's there for sure. Yeah, I think uh, I think uh, again ICM is starting to be a factor there, so people are going to have to call it off uh, much tighter. And that that's another factor actually, which makes Maria's call preflop kind of worse because normally, uh, like it's good to be in position in a tournament uh, because you get to first stack. But that kind of breaks down when stacks get shallow and ICM becomes a factor because then you almost kind of want to be the first person who is able to shove their chips into the pot and yeah. force the others into the ICM of having of, of having to make. Uh, either a bad call or or a big fold but anyways okay so we're, we're agreed on preflop um, so both players do call so now we have this big bloated pot um, of Six, 624k 624k yeah which basically means that even Rainer as the chip leader only has a stack to pot ratio of 2 so the others are just over the 1 so the flop comes down uh, jack 10 7 all hearts Nile crucially has the ace of hearts so it's an interesting flop in that they all actually have something here Nile has flopped two overs a gut shot and the nut flush draw um, Maria obviously has a set a set of tens Rainer has still his pair from pre-flop and a gut shot um, and a back draw and, and a nine high flush draw and Kristen has his top pair albeit on a on a very bad board where you're not going to be, you're not going to feel great about your top pair, which again brings us back to the point that maybe the cold pre-flop wasn't great. And then Niall just shoves um, for uh, 900k into into the pot, um, and then Maria is faced with a decision with pocket tens. So if you are 
Well, now, what are you thinking, David? Well, what I'm thinking, what kind of, what range of hands he is shoving there, rather than like trying to induce, perhaps. I know he's got like the pot side that left behind, more or less, well, just a bit over. But um, there's so many people in the pot, I think, you know, if you plop the nuts, like let's say he had Ace King of Hearts, would he really show? I doubt that. Um, if he had jacks, if he pulled a set of jacks, I, I also don't think he would show. I think he would just lead small or possibly, yeah, not checking, probably lead. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it, it, it looks like ace green, ace king, or aces with one of one heart. That's, that's that kind of hand that, you know, you want to take the pot right now. And if someone calls you the better hand, you still go out. So you're not drawing that. Yeah, I would agree with that. Like Neil might be loose pre-flop. He might have some moves in him. But I think once this flop comes down, it's business time with 40 big sitting there in the middle. And yeah, when he yeah. does go for the, the overshove there, and he took ages before he did it. He took a long time before deciding this was the route he was going to take. I imagine he was, maybe he thought about uh, checking and going for the check shove. Maybe he thought yeah, about yeah. betting a normal amount and calling it off if, if, if raised. Um, and, and ultimately decided there was enough in there to just try and shut it all out was was quite a good result. Um, if I'm Maria, though, I have to say the only decision I'm thinking about right now is, OK, I guess I'm up against some kind of draw, so I guess I'm going to have to do a hold here, but I'm probably, what, like 70% against the range, uh, against Neil. OK, there's guys behind me, but you know what? Even if they've got flushes, I can I can suck out. Um, yeah, I'm, exactly. basically just tr- I'm basically deciding how long I'm going to take before calling. <laughs> But precisely you had 64% really versus ace king of hearts and 35% uh, versus, uh, yeah, ace king and ace of hearts and aces, I mean, and even if she was against like flop, not plus, she's still 35% herself. So, yeah. So she, I mean, based on what she should, she should snap really. Yeah, I think she, she, she was worried about the players behind, uh, thinking, well, if I run into a flush here, I, I'm actually toast. But uh, when we covered this in our study session, Diva actually ran the, ran the spot, and she actually has 35% equity if somebody behind has enough flush already, and she calls it off. So she's actually getting the price. She's, she, she only needs 28, 29% equity. Yeah. Yeah. The only hand you don't want someone to wake up behind you with is jacks. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, that's the only hand you're worried about. And when you look, and, and I suppose the most important detail for Maria is, and, and you guys have kind of alluded to it there, it's not about whether you're good, it's whether you have the equity. And the most likely situation here is that you're extremely good. Neil looks like he has aces. Uh, aces with or without the ace of hearts kings with the king of hearts ace king with the ace of hearts or maybe like a king queen with the king of hearts as like the worst hand he might have um, in that spot and you're in such good shape against those yeah and what we another thing we discussed with Dara was like that when Maria was Mm -hmm. contemplating about her move or she was making a decision it was really strange to see that she didn't look at uh, Nell at all. She didn't try to get a live tell how comfortable he looked. Because when you really, like, even glanced at him in that short video online, he gulped and he looked really uncomfortable. So, you know, he can't have nuts. And so that's he needs a call, just based on that alone. Yeah, Diver made this point when we watched the video, which which was that uh, Niall, Niall didn't look at all confident, but Maria wasn't actually looking at him, so she, she, she yeah. didn't pick up on that, uh, uh, which is a, which is a 
when you have a really important decision, uh, a big decision, it's very important to look at your opponent to try and get a sense of if you can get yeah. anything from them, are they at, towards the top of their range more likely, or is it more likely they're uh, you know in the semi-bluffing part of their range as Nile is here? Um, uh, but yeah, it, it seemed like Maria didn't do that. Yeah, I think she missed out on information there for sure. One final point I would say is that even though Maria did make a bad fold, and I think she'd probably admit that herself on reflection, um, or, or at least when she saw the, <laughs> the reaction of, of the entire poker world to it, but she composed herself very well afterwards. Um, and if you are going to make a bad decision at the poker table, I always think it's better to make a bad fold than a bad call, because when you make a bad fold, at least you're still in the tournament. And it's worth saying that yeah. Maria did sort of rally from that point and actually ended up going to the final table as chip leader. Um, so she didn't let it, 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 it affect her mindset going forward, um, and she recovered very well. Yeah, that's a good point. Stay focused in the zone and just, yeah, play, play your game. We are joined now by one of my favourite people in poker. He's a former UKIPT Player of the Year. He's the Eureka Prague High Roller and 888 Live London Main Event Champion. Consistency personified. He's an online and live beast hailing from Shrewsbury, England, better known to some as Jabrakada. Tom Hall, welcome to the show. Hello. Thanks for having me. It's uh, so nice to have you, uh, Tom. Darren and I uh, have known you a long time. We first met you yeah. uh, at the UKIPT in Dublin in, I think it was back in 2011, although I'm fairly sure we must have been battling a lot on the online streets prior to that. Until recently, Tom, you earned the reputation of something of a bridesmaid. I hope you don't mind me saying that. that no, despite success, <laughs> That despite your huge success and, I don't know, millions earned, you had the unfortunate distinction of being a leading member of what I think it was Simon Dedman called the Second Place Club, with runner-up finishes in UKIBT Dublin High Roller, UKIBT Bristol High Roller, GUKBT Blackpool Main Event, uh, and I think you even had back-to-back on consecutive day runner-up finishes in EBT Vienna side events. Yeah. Was that ever something that bothered you, or did you just take it in your stride as a bit of bad variance at the end of a handful of live events? Well, I don't really, I don't really give a... How, how much am I allowed to swear on it? You can swear as much as you want. Okay. I, I don't really give a shit about, like, all the second places. Like, by... My game has always been fixed about making money, and if 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 you're playing well, you should finish second a lot. I think you know, like uh, there's going to be an, either an element of you in the chip lead or or you trying to survive against the chip leader. You know, like a lot of MTT poker, I find is like playing your stack appropriately and finding your way to second place as the short stack, and then going from there. Uh, or being the chip leader and just dominating. Yeah, I definitely, I, I, I heartily agree with that. Like, it, it's some, it's a charge people often make against me too that I come second a lot, and I, I have had my fair share of seconds. But I do think exactly like you say. Like sometimes second is kind of <laughs> what you should be shooting for. Uh, yeah. give, give, given the way the final table is set up and a lot of guys who say to me like oh well I always play for the win and then I, I look at I fucking hate that sentence yeah. I really hate that sentence. I know and then, and, and then I look at their record and say well where are all these wins like I see lots of 11th, 12th, 13th and when you make final table you, you usually come 6th or 7th like well, where are these wins it's just an ego thing people yeah. tell it to themselves to you know justify doing aggressive slash stupid shit we're, we're in this game to make money not to win like win full stop the, the aim of each tournament is to win the most amount of dollars that you can you know and if you come into the final table like seventh out of nine let's say your your goal is going to be 
if you don't win a big situation where you become the chip leader, your goal is going to be let the chip leader crush everyone else around you and kind of float through to heads up and see what happens. Like that's it's happened so much, and you've got to treat it as a financial decision, not as like an ego. You know, I'm I'm going to try and win this thing. Like every hand is separate, and just trying to make make some money. Yeah, I totally agree. And as David alluded to there at the, at the top, you, you did get the monkey off your back, so to speak, with three big uh, live results in the last year. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if it's the monkey's off my back yet, honestly. You know, like, the monkey will never be off my back because I'm really hard on myself. And, like, to me, when I, I want to achieve way bigger things, and I really feel like I haven't achieved, like, a huge amount yet. You know, you, we're surrounded by people winning ridiculous volumes of money all the time and multiple titles, etc. And as much as I'm happy with what I'm doing and how much money I'm making, like I, I do want to, I do want to be able to look back in the future and say I've achieved everything I wanted to achieve. And really, really, what I want to achieve is like having a million dollar score in a live tournament. That's always been my. My, my main two goals were to have a million dollar score in a live tournament and have a 100k score in an online tournament and you know not really been near either of those yet well tom i remember um well, it was a long time ago now darren and i drinking whiskeys with you late into the night during a uk yeah. edinburgh um and i re- i remember that night you were so honest as you always are about your struggles in the game particularly when starting out can you tell us a little bit how you got into poker and maybe a little bit of your background um uh, well, I guess I was always kind of going this direction. Like, I was in college. I was just a degenerate. University, I was also a degenerate. And uh, <laughs> when at college, it was you know hanging out with friends, and we we learned to play cards. Not really like poker necessarily, just card games we played between each other. We, we didn't really know about online poker or. You know, I'd never, I'd never watched a TV poker tournament before. I was just, we, we were, we were just trying to entertain ourselves with drink and drugs and cards. You know, like that's that's what it started as. And when I went to uni, being completely isolated, that's how I felt. Like university to me was like complete isolation because I really didn't feel like I fitted in with anyone, and uh, so I was really drawn to poker and uh kind of just took over my life from there i really didn't it felt like it was an open door with a lot of opportunities there and something that i could actually enjoy i was always into competition games etc so that's that's kind of what dragged me in just being being a dj and then not really having a lot of other opportunities let's say um and then it just turned into an addiction, I guess. Uh, I was pretty sure I could make a living, but I don't think I planned to for quite a few years. You know, my whole life was kind of like just a snowball rolling down a hill, and whatever happened happened. You know, wherever it ended up crashing, 
was what was going to happen. Yeah, I can, like, I, I can definitely relate to that. Like, people often say to me that I'm very disciplined, but I actually don't see myself as disciplined. It's more kind of like channeled addiction, I would almost call it. Yes, I agree. I, I thoroughly agree with that. Like, I, I don't think necessarily... I, I may have learned discipline because of it, but initially it wasn't it wasn't discipline that drove me to play so many hours to begin with you know yeah it was it was definitely an addiction yeah like gambling is an addiction it's just how you how you choose to channel it you know how you choose to control it yeah one thing about you which uh, correct me if i if, if i'm wrong but i think you've been pretty much self-staked for your whole career i mean obviously you sell for high rollers and stuff but you know everybody does that but you've, ma- you've managed to basically you know build up a role and, and work off that was that a conscious decision early on um or yeah yeah that that definitely was a conscious decision like i maybe I didn't have the influence of people around me, et cetera, or the knowledge that the staking community didn't exist. You know, I didn't, I wasn't sure if it was, I don't know, the first, the first month I played professionally, I knew about two plus two and I knew you could sell action on two plus two, et cetera. But my, the first month of playing professionally, I was focused on building my role with sit and goes and like building up my role to a point where I was comfortable on my own money. I, I didn't want to, I didn't want to ever get staked. I feel like it's really easy to slip back into a lot of these people who are staked. You go on a bad run even for a month and like, it can be really, really hard to get out of it. Not only financially, but mentally. And I always wanted to be massively overrolled for everything I played because I can't, I don't trust myself. Honestly, that's, that's a big part of it. Like, I don't know necessarily that I'm just going to lose it one day and just go off the rails for weeks, months, whatever, you know? And I wanted to have a contingency plan for no matter how fucked up I became, I wanted to be ready for that. Yeah, I, I think that's very commendable. Like, from the outside, you 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 seem almost a model professional in the sense that you're self-staked. You obviously have exerted good bankroll management. You've avoided going bust. You're also very good in game selection. I, I know there are people who, like, literally just follow you into games because they assume if you're in the game, it's, it's, it's you've obviously put some time probably in. Probably good. It's probably good, yeah. But... Yeah. But it's 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 interesting that you're kind of coming from this place where you're just incredibly self-critical and almost almost afraid of yourself. Whereas, like a lot of the people that I've seen come up in the game, you know, with swagger and arrogance, end up crashing and burning because they they never really question themselves on that stuff. Well, I think it's easy to have. I mean, I see it all the time. I see it all the time. I I, I see people I know, friends, you know, like disappear. People who like young kids you, you really don't see as many like actual young kids in the game now as you did like three or four years ago like three or four years ago it felt like there was like a bunch of 18 to 20 year olds all starting you know playing mid stakes right away and now none of them remain and there's no like new faces either it seems like the the european circuit i feel like is really dying a bit um what was the question? Uh, yeah, no, I was just just in, t- in in terms of like the fact that your sort of self critical nature has actually been a been a huge help over the sort of like more freewheeling. Oh, it's all going to work out. Uh, I'm the best attitude that some of the some of the young ballers come up with. 
I think it might be more fun to have the young baller actually <laughs> don't give a fuck. And you might end up being Fed or Hulks, you know? Like, for, for every Fed or Hulks out there, there's probably like 60 kids who are equally smart, who have equal potential, who just didn't find the right wins at the right time, you know? Yeah. I'm not trying to discredit Fedor in any way. He's just a good example of someone who exploded, you know, out of nowhere. And confidence, like, builds more confidence. So it can only take, like, a couple knockbacks on a really confident person before their confidence is kind of shattered. And, you know, you start doubting yourself in... You might play $100 and above tournaments on a regular basis, and now you're doubting yourself in $55 buy-ins because you've had a bad month and you've been riding high for so long. And like I said, there's a lot of people who just have disappeared. It's, it's a pretty sad world, honestly, that we live in. Like, there's a, there's a lot of rats and there's a lot of vultures, you know, just sitting around praying and preying on others. And... Uh, that's one of the reasons I really don't like the staking community because I feel like someone's sitting at the top taking a big old slice and a lot of people are really under a lot of pressure and stress because of it. One thing about you, and maybe this is misread by, by me, but I, I, I actually see you as a very emotional person. Um, I don't see I you as one of the sort of like German bots who just sits at the table and um, you know no, nothing really goes in and out. But at the same time, you are, you know, very controlled at the table. How, like, how, how difficult has that been for you? And, like, do you think that poker has been a positive overall on your sort of, like, mental health? Or do you worry that maybe, you know, it, it, it might be doing some long-term uh, damage? That's a very good question. You, you, you hit the nail on the head. I'm an emotional person. I don't show it, like super often because of the line of work I'm in I, I really try and suppress it as much as possible like a huge huge part of my day-to-day -day lifestyle is trying to suppress that emotional person that I am um, I don't know I think I think up to this point it, it's definitely had a positive effect uh, who I was at college and university I was totally out of whack all the time just at school I was just angry all the time college and university I was just kind of distant I guess like not really no real goals or focus or future in mind at all and poker's given me pretty much everything that normal people have you know like a, a career and an end goal and like it I more worry about the I think mentally I'll be okay like in the future uh, it worries me how many hands I've played online <laughs> and how much of a negative impact that could have on my eyes or my brain you know like the physical effects of sitting in front of a screen for whatever seven million hands or whatever you want to whatever number it is i think i think that could have had like a really bad long-term influence so tom you mentioned there that you sort of suppress a lot of things uh 
you know, your whole attitude towards when you go and sit down at the table is, is an act of suppression of that emotional side of yourself. What techniques do you have to sort of separate those two things, the rational from the emotional? Do you have things that you rely upon that help with that? No, not really. Like, I, I don't know. I don't know if I'm necessarily switching off the emotional part of my brain. It's it's more just like I've done these things so many, so many, so many times that like uh, they're just separate. They're separate decisions now, you know, like interesting. The, I'm trying to I'm trying to turn off the emotion when something dumb happens or like, I don't know, you feel I'm trying not to feel like positive or negative about anything you know if if i feel if i see that i've I've win kings versus aces i try and suppress that feeling of enjoyment because it's not good to necessarily have those up and down rushes it's not all about stopping yourself from screaming at the computer it's also about not screaming at the computer when you get super lucky at the end as well because it's all they're all they're all points on an emotional roller coaster and you're trying to take it from you know minus three plus three emotion on either side and make it to point five instead on on both sides and that's probably not a good way to live your life but it definitely helps me like ignore the swings yeah like it's interesting like uh, essentially what you're talking about is detachment and the, the first time i really noticed detachment was when i did sort of like super long distance running and when you run really long distance races you spend a lot of time in extreme agony and you know not very good physical state and what i found when i ran those races was that it was almost like I detached from myself and I would just think okay well now I'm feeling this pain but but it was sort of like it was just something that I was observing rather than you know getting upset yeah, about you weren't, living. you weren't registering like the pain as data it was more like you're an onlooker yeah exactly yeah you were like third person watching yourself in pain and you're like well it's, you know why if I don't think about it then it's not there. Uh, similarly, like at, at the big points of my poker career, I've, I've pretty much felt the same thing. It's kind of like the the rest of the world stops existing. This is this is all that I'm thinking about now. But I am also sort of just watching myself and 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 seeing what's happening rather than sort of going on an emotional roller coaster. And like when people have watched me at big moments, like my World Series final table or whatever, they they they've remarked on how unexcited I look. And but that's actually how, how genuinely yeah, how I felt. Yeah, you show your excitement afterwards when you go for dinner with your friends. Exactly, you try. Like I'm not trying. If if I won the main event, like you would see me like unenthused for like 27 hours of footage, you know, like literally, like I don't know, like I guess kind of like a zombie for 27 hours playing poker. And then if when I finally reach the finish line, I think I'd just be so overwhelmed, like by the whole, by how much I've been trying to suppress up to that point, you know. It's it's good to let it all flow out in in one, especially when you're with people that you know and care about in close quarters. You know, I don't want to be in the public limelight at all, and uh, I just want to cruise along. And obviously, I want to be respected within the poker world. I think that's a big part of why everyone's doing what they're doing in poker. But uh, if I can just cruise along and make good money for the next five or ten years as well then that's that's great you know like i really I've, poker's becoming 
I mean, for the last the last few years, it's really becoming like a media whore type of thing where, like, if you want to be a superstar in poker or any form of, if you if you want your career to take off in a non poker, you know, uh, sense. Five, ten years ago, you'd want to be sponsored by a company. That was like a big deal to get poker stars signing, for example. Now you've just got to expose yourself all the time in the media. And it's the same with all things, I guess, at the end of the day. The, the whole world is becoming more of a media whore. But poker is becoming a bit whorish as well, I feel like. And, uh, yeah, I'm just trying to stay low-key. Now, I don't think you would have come on this show, for example, four years ago. <laughs> I would have, because I respect the two of you. <laughs> if, if it was too, if it was too, if 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 it was someone I didn't know, we're talk. I feel like we're talking here on a pretty normal, personal level, not interview esque, because we know each other well enough that it's not awkward, you know. Yeah. Like if it was, if Poker News invited me in to do a. Uh, like a 30 minute interview with two people I'd never met before like they'd be posing me all sorts of weird you two know what I'm like and you know how to pose me questions you know and I'm pretty sure that they would ask me questions that I wouldn't necessarily like or want to answer the biggest debate raging in the game right now is uh, I guess call it GTO versus exploitative and I, I, I I saw a very good quote a few years ago, yeah. which I th- which is attributed to you, uh, which was the game theory trumps all. Do you still th- think that's the case, or where do you stand on the whole sort of GTO versus exploitative play? I'm a lot more exploitative than I used to be, for sure. Like, I'm I'm really not on board with these like the the whole Pio train we're going on right now, you know where it's like everybody sees that everybody in the public's eye, I think to be the best, the best possible poker player, you need to hide all your towels and you need to study Pio and that's it. You know, like there's, there's so many things in poker that aren't attributable to learning on a computer or a simulator. You know, you can't, you can't, you can't rationalize or numerically value a lot of things in poker. You can't just like sit down at a live table and chuck everything into the pile solver and off we go. You know, live poker, you're supposed to be making ridiculously exploitable plays all the time, like all the time. I think the best players aren't the pile solvers are the ones that are like, they've got like a free form mind and they can look at it they can see what the other person is thinking and exploit them, not not necessarily see what's the right move and exploit them, you know? Like, they... People like David E. Katai, who, you know, in terms of Pio, is a bloody idiot, probably, you know? If, if we took a load of... If we took three final tables that David E. Katai was on... And like we took game to a load of German players and told them to analyze it, they'd be like, I mean, what the fuck is he doing? (laughs) Like all the time, they'd be like, what the fuck are we watching right now? But he's doing stuff that he's he's sensing stuff and like that he's he's sensing intangible stuff that you can't give 
numbers to. Like I said, I, I don't like talking about Pyo much in general. Like I, I don't, I don't, I don't like the way poker's going. Yeah. Like the, like I don't want to be like Patrick Antonius, like a whining little bitch. But <laughs> like, I, I feel like it's just. It's the media. It's the media again. The media are just looking. The media are putting such a like big spotlight on the Germans and how important it is to be a wizard now. That like the model that everyone looks up to is 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 wrong. I feel like you know, like t- ten years ago we were looking up to people because they were like sick readers or like you know they've got unbelievable experience and people want to build up to that level of like knowledge etc. And now it's like well, you've got to be really smart. Like to be the best player, you've got to be really smart, and you've got to study Pio, and that's it. You know, yeah. if you know Pio, you're going to win all the money, and that's what the media seems to be portraying right now. Yeah, I think I think you're right. I mean, the media, whenever they see something new, they they they, they tend to sort of overstate the case and. And I maybe even go further than you know exponents of of the solvers would go. Like I mean, obviously there's like glaring holes. Uh, like you can't solve multiway pots, for example, and multiway pots are a huge part of poker. Um, and, that, yeah. and that's never going to change. That's a game theory limitation, not 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 a, not a software limitation. So like, how much work do you put into studying these days, or like do you put any work at all? And, and if it's not with the simulators, like what form does it take you? Well, it's non-existent. I don't study at all. I don't. I don't look at anything. I don't look at book. I don't look at anyone else's data. I talk. I talk to people sometimes. I'm just trying to build up my own knowledge from mistakes and watching what other people do at the table. You know, I, I really try and learn from my own play. I'm not trying to. I, I could. What I need to be doing really is looking back at my hand histories and looking at where you know I could improve, etc. But I don't know necessarily if that's more profitable than getting back on the session and playing another session, mm. you know? Like, I, f- I feel like uh, the three hours you spent studying, you probably could have made another whatever EV. And I don't know, I'm just not, I'm not a learning, I'm not like a book learning person, you know? I, I like to just plug away and get better by learning just in the moment. Well, Tom... Thank you so much for, for the chat. Before we go, I did want to ask you one more question. My intended question was to ask you about your uh, maybe poker exit plan, but you kind of answered that earlier on. So I was going to ask you, if you didn't uh, end up playing the game of poker as you do now, what do you imagine you would be in some alternate universe? That's such a bad question for me. Like, I, I really feel like uh, if I didn't find poker, I was going to hit a pretty bad dead end. Like I, I had no, I had no future plans or prospects or anything. Like in school, I was a fuck up. I went to a really good secondary school. I was a fuck up, and then I went to university and I fucked that up as well. And I really don't feel like I had any prospects at all. I think, I think if I applied myself, I could have done. Basically, I mean. Like, like most parents say to you, if you apply yourself, you can do whatever you want. And you don't want to believe it, but it is, it's usually true, I think. And uh, I don't know if I would have found something to apply myself to correctly. If, if I went into the normal working world and I was working for someone else in you know, any form of office job, I don't know if I honestly would have found the motivation to push myself to do anything. You know, I think like... 
I think a lot of problem with society in general is just you fall into mediocrity, you know? Mm. You just slip into a line of, like, do the same thing every week, go drinking on Friday, like, recover for the weekend, and then work for the next five days. And then before you know it, you're, like, 32 years old. Like, I... I feel like I probably would have fallen into the same cycle. I don't know. So I don't know. I really don't know where I would have ended up if uh, I, I know I'd be pretty fucking broke. I know that <laughs> like, uh, is like I needed, I needed to find some form of self self-employment that I could choose how much money I made because otherwise I would have just been a lazy, lazy fucker. And I would have been still the same person I was at university. You just, getting fucked up every weekend or probably getting fucked up as much as possible. Well, Tom, I'm glad you found poker and it's far from mediocre yeah, that you are at us. As always, it's been lovely chatting with you. We've both wanted to get you on the show for so long. Um, it's great to have finally had you on. Yeah, well, I hope I didn't. We'll, we'll see what the edit comes out like because, uh, <laughs> you know, I love I love to ramble and go off topic a lot. When, when someone asks me a question, I just I tend to go off the rails and start like philosophizing about life in general you know and no, that's great I try, I try not to do that but it's hard you know? well the one thing i can promise you is that uh, patrick antonius will be dm'd our uh, trailer for this episode <laughs> that, that was more of a joke you know don't take that don't take that that's the part we're going to cut out what you saying that's the joke. power of the media the media are going to fucking come down on me like a tire right now but, I bet Tom Hall squares up to Patrick Antonius. Yeah, like, uh, oh my god, he'd break my face into like <laughs> tiny little pieces. Um, oh, what was I say? I did, I did a fucking article in some poker magazine where I shout. I, I said Jason Mercier was like. Uh, I, I said Jason's an example of someone who doesn't talk on the stream. You know, like he, when he does commentary, he's very. He, he uh, suppresses as much information as he can, you know? Like, he's trying not to give strategy. And I got a load of stick for that. So, you know, maybe I'll get a load of stick for this as well. Obviously, I've got mad respect for Antonius, but I thought that interview was just fucking garbage. It was one of the worst I've seen. <laughs> it was, yeah, it was well, the whole topic. It, the, the, even worse, I think, was the one where they're like, uh, so what do you think of Chris Ferguson winning Player of the Year? And everyone's just like, uh, ooh, uh, uh, you know, he's been grinding for a long time. And at least Tonka uh, finally said his said his bit yeah, at the end. And uh, thank God, thank God, someone did. <laughs> Might be another time in Barcelona where stars had to round up people to say positive things about the changes to EPT slash championship slash whatever the fuck they were calling it. Uh, they literally couldn't find anybody that didn't work for them. It was like, and now here's Jack Cody, and now here's Elke, and now, <laughs> what have all these people got? It's like a business. That's like a business decision, you know. That's like a business trying to like make their company look bad. This is like this is like a separate entity trying to get positive light shed about a real genuine scumbag, you know. Yeah. Like I, I really just don't get it. Like I, I don't get why you would ask that question. Like I just think it's really, really poor from them as a company, you know. Like if. If they asked me to do, if they asked me, I remember they, I remember Poker News once asked me, they, they did a round, they did one of these questionnaire things where they went around a load of people and they said, they said to me, they were asking a load of people, they said, what's the first word you think of when you think of Sorrel Mizzy? Chief. Yeah. This was, 
this was before the shit with Rory Brown. Yeah. I mean, this, if I could go back and redo that interview, like, uh, <laughs> like it was only a few words, but like, I mean, that guy's a real fucking piece of shit. You know, <laughs> like, how can you? I know Rory a bit as well, and from what I heard the story, it's just fucking disgusting. It's not even yes. disgusting on... You hear a lot, a lot of disgusting shit in poker, but disgusting on a poker level, you know? Like, not on a moral... A lot of the shit that we outrage about is so small and pathetic in the real world. But what Sorrell did to Rory, I think, is, is horrible on a personal level, on a human level, you know? To do that to your friend, like, is just despicable. I think. Tom, I now feel like we have to just have a separate section of the show every week where you speak your mind. Great at the end. <laughs> you you have to get the disclaimers ready where you're like, uh, <laughs> we don't necessarily agree with everything this gentleman says, but we're going to put it in the end. <laughs> well, as always, Tom, it's been lovely chatting with you. We've laughed a lot. Uh, hope to maybe have you on again sometime. Yeah, maybe we'll get that segment in. Tom's round. Flying around the world taking Dan Shack and John Thorell's money. You know, that's the that's the that's the way to win at poker in 2017. Just travel the world and play 25Ks against businessmen. Fuck the Germans. <laughs> no, nah, I love it. I I know it pretty well. I think we're cool. <laughs> Thank you so much, Tom. Okay. All right, guys. See you later. Appreciate it. Before we go, you may recall that last season we had on the fabulous Jennifer Tilly and the, well, equally fabulous Barney Boatman. You may also remember coming up in conversation that they had both contributed to a book that was coming out. Well, that book, He Played for His Wife and Other Stories, edited by Anthony Holden and Natalie Galustian, is on the shelves now. And to celebrate that fact, we are joined once again by none other than Hendon Mobster, Barney Boatman. Barney, welcome back to the show. Thank you very much. So, my first question is, why should people buy this book? Well, I mean, everybody should buy it, but particularly people who uh, are interested in poker, because... uh, it's such a great idea. I can't believe it hasn't been done before. It, it's a compilation of stories that are all in one way or another connected to poker, some obliquely, some very directly. And the collection of people who've written for it is extraordinary. There's, there's the, the British poet laureate, the, the, there's great screenwriters, novelists, actors, comedians, uh, and then there's a couple of comedians who think they're poker players. Uh, and I'll class myself <laughs> there. Um, uh, there's, there's people you'll know from the poker world, as you mentioned, Jennifer Tilly, James McManus, uh, some people might know Grub Smith, really good poker commentator. There's a really incredible mix. Uh, every story is different. They're all gripping, they're funny, they're real. You know that the people know about poker, but they're all written in a way that anybody could appreciate it. So it'd be a great, you know, it'd be a good Christmas present for your granny if she doesn't mind the occasional swear word. <laughs> and Barney, what's your favourite of the stories in the book? Well, that's a tough one, actually. Uh, probably if I had to pick one, I'd, I'd say Grub Smith's because, you know, it's just it's just so perfect, I think. It's, it, it's like, it's really tense and you can kind of hear the clock ticking in the background. It's set on death row, and it's, it's very it's visceral and it's real. It's very, very punchy and well-written. I also love Jennifer Tilly's one, which is 
very honest and real and it's kind of cinematic and it's kind of wild and funny uh, and at the same time as being very very far out in terms of what happens it's also very very believable um, moving as well so I love uh, those probably ah but you know there's there's the, there's the one by Lucy Porter who's a comedian which is absolutely hilarious and kind of raunchy and very funny as well and, um, <laughs> and DBC Pierre who's, who's a great writer and he's Probably the writing, but the pure writing, his one's probably, it's also a very, very good idea. He's come up with this idea of the uh, poker DNA. You know, what is poker DNA? And he's kind of he investigates it by talking about these different games that he's been involved in. Uh, and it's, you know, that, that's very, very gripping and funny and clever as well. So I'll, I'll pick those ones out. Well, Bernie, yes. you, men- you mentioned Booker Prize winner, uh, DBC Pierre, uh, obviously in there as well, Oscar-nominated screenwriter Patrick Marber and uh, oh, Britain's yeah. poet laureate Caroline Duffy, who you also mentioned. But my question now is, what's your story about? Well, it's about 20 pages. Um, <laughs> it's it, it's um, my story. I, I set myself a a problem. I said, what do people who who do dodgy things, who who cheat or get involved in scams or whatever, what do they say to themselves when they look in the mirror? How do they think that the world looks at them and how do they think that they're justified in what they do? And I picked a kind of very weird, unusual way of asking that question. And I wrote something which uh, which is quite um, it's got a few twists and turns to it. It's quite a surprising story. In fact, I would say read it before you read the uh, foreword because one of the twists is kind of um, given away in the foreword. Oh, no, there's um, a spoiler. Oh, no. There's a little spoiler there, kind of, I think. But, I mean, I, I might be being a bit precious about it. But, you know, I never read the foreword first anyway. I always read the first story, then go back and read the foreword. But... Um, it's my my story is kind of it, it's it's totally fictional, um, and uh, actually someone who read it uh, recently asked me if it was a true story. And when you read it, you'll think you'll, you'll realise what it's, what a very strange question that is because it can't really be a true story. Uh, but it's um, it's a little bit funny here and there, but it's kind of um, it's quite dark basically. Cool. Yeah, I'm I'm definitely looking forward to the book. There's a great uh, mix of writers there, and I'm uh, I'm actually very intrigued to read. Jennifer's uh, story as well because um, Jennifer's social media is, is amazing it's a real trip like she's such a clever person and just the way she expresses herself is so unique um, um, it's going to be interesting to see what her story is like yeah her, her story is a real page turner you know some of them you kind of pick up and put down a little bit here and there but her one I just read it straight through and I just loved every minute of it. And Barney, before I let you go, has it whet your appetite to do any more writing? Uh, yeah, well, I mean, I've had an appetite for that, I suppose, for, for, for a long time. And I am doing bits and pieces. I've been working on a few things for a while. And, and um, one of the things it's inspired me to try and do is just try and write um, some more stories in the same style. What I've gone for... Um, it's probably a bit kind of um, uh, big-headed, or I can't even think of the word for, for what I mean. But it, it, I've, I've gone for a sort of London Damien Runyon, um, so, and um, it kind of lends itself to if this work, if this story works, then there's no reason why I can't 
uh, write a, a series of stories in the same vein. And that's what I'm trying to do at the moment. Well, look, I can't wait to have you on this time next year when we can plug that book instead. Um, but in the meantime, Barney Bowman, thank you so much, guys out there. He played for his wife and other stories. Check it out. Yeah, available uh, uh, on Amazon and you can get it at uh, Waterstones. Um, great Christmas present. Thanks a lot, guys. Thanks, Barney. Thank Thanks, you. Barney. Playing us out this week, well, it seemed appropriate to tease you with the first few paragraphs of Barney's story read by the great man himself. Am I a good man? I want to say so. But I am a poker player. Old school. It's my job to stick the knife in, step back and smile while your life drains away a buck at a time and mine with it. Ah, but then there's my charity work and what a piece of work he is, was. I think Billy Bones was there the first time I sat down in a speeder, standing near the table, slapping your shoulder and giving a lucky rub when you rake a pot, whispering in some bloke's ear and slipping a couple of chips in his inside pocket, quick and slick, a thoughtful, solicitous, charming ponce. Bones knew. I wanted to be a better man than that cost. He's running bad. It's his daughter's birthday. His car's in the pound. Every time I put in a pot, there's Billy, the ethical rake. And what got me? I mean, there was no way on earth that a penny was ever coming back. He got the readies and I got to be the angel. What got me was his little book. Everything went in. Every chip, every note, every tournament cash I was due a piece of, if he hadn't run into a bogey or the dice table first. Once I asked him how we stood, he looked so pained that I never asked again. There had been as many rumours about Billy's health as his criminal record. Those little shits in the Mill Hill game had a book on what was going to kill him, but no one collected. Thanks again to Rounu, Diva, Barney and Tom. On next week's show, we chat to poker's number one vlogger and YouTube sensation, Andrew Nimi. We'll also talk to sports psychologist and poker mindset guru who has worked with several WSOP final tablists, Jared Tendler. Until then, from Dara, Ian and myself, good night and good luck.